Hi, I'm Tim Marlow, the Artistic Director of the Royal Academy of Arts in London. You're listening to a podcast from our events programme, recorded live in the new Benjamin West Lecture Theatre. Good evening and welcome to the Royal Academy of Arts. My name is Jessica Rutterford and I'm the Adult Learning Programmer here. So as part of our Anthony Gormley series of events, we've organised a programme titled Where Language Ends, which is inspired by the conversations held by Anthony Gormley in his studio with guests from a range of disciplines. This series of events invites you to unpick and consider the wide-ranging themes that have featured within his practice. We hope that following this series, you'll be encouraged to revisit the exhibition with new ideas and experience the works in a completely different manner. So I'm delighted tonight to introduce this event titled From Creativity to Cosmology, Understanding Space Through Art. This evening, we've brought together a panel consisting of voices from both astrophysics and art, including Ruth Jarman and Joe Gerhardt, who make up the brilliant artist duo Semiconductor, along with theoretical astrophysicist Priyamvada Natarajan. The panel tonight will springboard lightly from Anthony Gormley's exhibition and then look to discuss the wider topic of how we can collaboratively explore the relationship between physics, cosmology, and reality in relation to art. The event will be chaired tonight by John O'Shea, who's the Associate Creative Director for Science Gallery London, which is a new gallery at London Bridge and part of King's College London, where artists are commissioned to work in relation to science and technology. Please do join me in welcoming all panelists to the stage. Thank you very much, Jessica. Um, good evening, everybody. Um, so as Jessica says, um, this evening we're here um, as part of the Where, Ang Where Language Ends program, um, from creativity to cosmology, understanding space through art. Um, it's a huge pleasure to um, have our guests here this evening, Priyamvada Natarajan, uh, who is professor in the Department of Astronomy and Physics at Yale University. Thank you. She's a theoretical astrophysicist and is interested in cosmology, dark matter, and black holes, which she will explain everything about, I'm sure. <laughs> um, and Priya has also recently collaborated with Anthony Gormley um, on a virtual reality project, which we'll talk a little bit about later on. Um, also uh, with us this evening are the artist duo Semiconductor, um, which is Joe Gerhardt and Ruth Jarman, um, their work explores the material nature of our world um, and how we experience it through the lenses of science and technology. Um, Semiconductor have also um, previously exhibited work here at the Royal Academy, um, actually alongside Anthony's work, um, which we'll, we'll touch upon as well. Um, so there are lots of historic points of intersection to draw upon, points where art and science uh, interconnect, and that's what we're going to be uh, teasing out. But as Jessica mentions, this, uh, this evening's event is happening in the context of the major exhibition of Anthony Gormley's work here at the Royal Academy. And just, I'm just curious, I'm sure our, our panelists are curious, <laughs> how many people here have, have seen the exhibition? Um, and has anybody not seen the exhibition? So a few people, so th that's okay. So first of all, the exhibition continues until the 3rd of December, so you would have an opportunity if you want to. And also, the discussion and the event this evening does not rely on, on any prior knowledge of the exhibition, so, uh, so you'll be fine. Um, so um, without further ado, we'll proceed where, where language ends and where art and science 
collide. Um, and before we show any materials or anything like that, I'd just like to go straight into a question, really, for our guests. Um, so I think there's, there's sometimes this idea, um, and perhaps you could speak to this first, Priya, mm -hmm. this idea that science um, is not actually very creative. Um, and there's a flip side to that, 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 um, that art is very creative, but, but, but not all that rigid. Um, and I'm wondering, does that ring true to you, that science is not a creative pursuit? Right, but I think um, that has been the presentation of what science is and what scientists do. Um, that, you know, there's a very sanitized view has been presented, right? So scientists are basically these people in white lab coats who are making objective inferences from nature using instruments and making measurements. And because the descriptions are mathematical, um, that they're seen as not only being objective, but also very rigorous, because you have the language of mathematics that gives you the rigor. And uh, in all of that, what is really lost is the fact that science is actually a very creative endeavor. And in fact, the, there's a lot of similarity in the various creative pursuits, including science and art and creating music, um, in the process, in what it is, not just what drives people, to individuals to actually do science or art, but also the, the ways in which new discoveries are made. And these discoveries can be in science or in art, in representation, in conception. And I think there's a, there's a very fundamental deep way in which you cannot separate out science as being different from other creative processes. I think it's partly been the fault of scientists that this presentation of uh, objective, of the, I mean, science is also very subjective. Who chooses what problem to work on, what appeals to you? And of course, scientists bring a lot of passion to what they do, emotion and passion. And you know, I have found that you know, as a working scientist, right, so the human and the psychological side of science are very much part of the work that we do. And Joe and, and Ruth, perhaps, um, so you've, uh, as artists, worked in um, environments where scientists have been doing their practice. W what would you say to this, to this idea? Um, well, what's interesting is the way that we, we create these, this kind of cult of personality with, with art and science, where we really we, we sell the ideas that you know, a scientist came up with a theory and, and it was just all coming, came off out of their head, and, and artists are often sold as being the only person that, that worked that way. And, and, it's, and it's really it's a whole culture that creates these things. Um, and as soon as you look at that, it all falls apart. And, and do you realize um, that it's much more interesting that um, nowadays, I think it's especially interesting it's with very science, collaborative, you, you need right. a huge amount of people working in an area to create new discoveries. And maybe that's a bit where the, the creativity becomes a bit more abstract, because artists very much have to sell themselves as being the unique creator of their universe. Mm, yeah, art's kind of always <laughs> been shrouded in this sense of mystery. But it's not very clear about what that process is. And um, I was part of a really interesting meeting of people at the Institute of Physics a couple of years ago, where it was bringing artists and scientists together to talk about artists and scientists working together. And it was really interesting 
in that there were people who were all quite professional in their field. And I think for that reason, people felt very comfortable just to ask the most basic questions. You know, they felt very comfortable. So I kind of talked about some of our work, and then there was a scientist who said to me, well, how do you learn how to make art? And I said, well, you know, there's a rigour. It's the same as science. You know, we go to university or art school, and we're taught how to do it, and then there's like a peer review system, you know, and in that way, it's not so different from the same rigour that is applied sort of in a scientific way, although maybe there's a large kind of proportion of artists who might want you to think differently. <laughs> yeah, I suppose in, uh, so being responsible for a gallery which is presenting mm. art and science in interaction, we often think about these as, as two philosophies for, mm. for understanding the world and hopefully that's what will get teased right. out a little bit. Um, well, I think um, one can almost imagine that there are two different lenses with which we really view the world and that, you know, as with lenses, some are rose-tinted some are convex, some are concave, so they offer different perspectives. Um, so I think that sort of, uh, there's a complementarity, I think, that's uh, also very essential. I'm wondering, since, since we're talking about lenses, and that's, I know, um, why, why don't we have a little look at some of the, some of the images that, that really influence um, your work? The, we've got some images, haven't we, of the, oh, with right. the Hubble telescope. Right. Let's maybe... <laughs> Let's maybe go into lenses. So um, if we go, please, to... Uh, if we go to slide number um, six, please. Um, and we can maybe talk about something concrete. I think you want to go to the previous slide. Oh, is it... Number uh, five, maybe, first. I can change it here, uh, yeah. There we go. Yeah, so what this is, speaking of lensing, right? So this is um, one of uh, nature's telescopes. So this is a large aggregate of galaxies, which is called a cluster of galaxies. You see this sort of band. And what this does, it actually bends the light of objects that are behind this cluster. And we end up having a really distorted view of the background. But these distortions are actually quite systematic, so they can be mathematically calculated. They are predicted by Einstein's theory of general relativity, which tells you that any matter would, aggregates of matter would lens light so you have these objects that have matter, you have distant galaxies, and the light gets bent. So when we see the distant universe through this lens, we actually get a sort of warped view. But it's a systematic warped view. We know we could undo the light bending. But what is observed in this exquisite Hubble Space Telescope image is that this distorted view is not consistent with the only matter in the lens being associated with what we can see. You need 10 times more matter than there actually is for this level of light bending. So could we see the next slide, please? So what we are seeing here is the reconstructed inferred distribution of dark matter, which is shown as a blue haze, which is really what is there, which is what you need to explain all the observed distortions. And this is inferred from the measured distortions by undoing them. And this is, again, overlaid on what we actually see. So this is the unseen universe, as it were. Um, and if we can show the final slide. So this blue haze, if I just kind of invert it and show you how this dark matter is clumped or aggregated, that's sort of a very high-resolution map. So you know, lenses are, can be distorting. But as long as we know how they distort, 
then um, you know, we can infer a lot more. So this is, I suppose, something historically that, uh, that has always been part of how, how science works, that we're presented with um, quite compelling stories and, and um, evidence and imagery, in this case, to testify potentially to the existence of something called dark, dark matter. matter. Yeah. Um, and I suppose in, in your work, Ruth and Joe, you bring a different lens. You sort of interrogate some of this mm. imagery some of the mm. time. Yeah, I mean, can we go back to um, one of those images? Because presumably this image has been made up from probably thousands of images to get to this point to make this, so from the original data. Right, it has been cleaned from, yeah, several pointings were put together and it's been cleaned up, yeah. So, and so, many filters have been yes. combined to give this. And so, and presumably that's done as to both kind of reveal the information as a scientist that you want to bring out in that image, but also to give the general public an idea of what space might look like beyond what is po physically possible for us to experience. Sure. Yeah. yeah, so may maybe we should talk about this about black rain and go okay, yeah, sure. that image, because that's kind Can of relevant. Slide nine, please context. Uh, slide number nine, please. Um, and just for some context, we, so this is the work that I mentioned at the start, which is called Black Rain, which yeah. Semiconductor presented here at, uh, at the Royal Academy. Yeah, so I think it was in 2010, there was an exhibition here called Earth, Art of a Changing World. And um, so this piece of work, it's called Black Rain, and it's a moving image work. And the images are data which has been collected by um, a pair of satellites which are orbiting around the sun with the Earth. They're called stereo. And the, the, they're taken by a camera called the heliospheric imager. And they're looking at the space between the Earth and the sun. And they're interested in looking at this matter that's coming off of the sun. They call it coronal mass ejections. And What are they called, sorry? the coronal mass ejection. So they're this mass of matter that's getting kind of ejected solar from storms. the sun. Okay. So like the solar storms, but bigger and fiercer. And, um, you know, for, to make this work, we went back to what we call the raw data. So as artists, we're really interested in raw data. Um, and for us, what that means is the data, as soon as it has left the instrument, and what tends to happen with the raw data is that you end up with a lot of the signatures of the technology. So you have a lot of the artifacts that are inherent in the capturing process and lots of perhaps the noise and the artifacts that maybe aren't useful to science, but that we always feel that bring part of the narrative of the capturing process. So we're very interested in kind of using that as a way to remind us of the presence of kind of man as an observer of the world and this is matter that we can't directly right. experience. And perhaps also deconstructing that process and the language of science as a way to start understanding, oh, this is a photograph that mm. has been taken, and you kind of recognize some of the, the artifacts that kind of come with that process. So if we're very interested in the, the matter that it's studying, but then also the technology and the scientific language that's brought into play to kind right, of... So the intervention mm. of the scientist as observer and what, what this intervention yes. actually does. And we're interested in, in seeing how then that reflects on us as humans and how mm -hmm. we experience nature. So what it's saying about how we 
kind of exist in the world. Because we're normally used to seeing that the Hubble images as these beautiful, glossy, um, coloured images, but really space doesn't look like that. Those are constructed, and, and they are very beautiful images, but um, in a way, they, you see more of a story if you look at the raw data, which for us is actually closer to the truth, in, in a sense rather than a kind of human interpretation of what we'd like to see. So it's not, it's, you know, they both tell different stories and they both have a, a different picture, but... Um, but you don't, but the, but the data, the processing of the data, as you said, it removes sort of instrumental artifacts mm. and uh, artifacts that carry a trace yes. of the process by which that image was taken. Yes. But a lot of the Hubble images that you see they are real in yes. the sense that these are not objects that don't exist. It's yeah. just that they are seen in different filters. Yes. They are seen in different lights and they are put together. Mm. And a spiral galaxy does look like yes. a giant gas spiral in the sky with light and dust and so on. Yeah. So these are not representations. No. Just want to clarify, right? Mm -hmm. So the image that we it's, saw of the Hubble yeah. Space Telescope. Yeah. But, but the, we, we choose an aesthetic color range to represent these. Absolutely. Yeah. An aesthetic color range that in the case of the Hubble Space Telescope, right, our filters, are the cameras, you know, um, are also tuned to be, cover a lot of the visible light range that our retinas are sensitive to. So data is, of course, collected in much longer wavelengths mm. than what we are sensitive to, sort of the infrared, yeah. mid-infrared um, as well in those mm. images that I showed you. Mm. And then they're put together, then the composite is made. Yeah. And, um, so it's not so much, but the filters that are on the cameras also have, are adapted. They have, yes. you know, within the visual range, mm. there are many filter sets that are part of, mm. uh, yeah, that carry the blue. But they're also looking at things that are beyond our human um, physical abilities, so the infrared and the ultraviolet. Are, are That's all, right, all are also combined. Images. They're also combined. So, you know, unless you know these things, in a way you're, you're being, it's an illusion of, something greater than our ability to, to, to witness something. Yeah. At that yeah. point of, of yeah. illusion, because we've, we've gone quite far into space <laughs> and, sort of, uh, and we've not really gra grounded things, probably a more like a, a tangible sort of point to, to, to come in at. Um, the work, um, Priya, which you worked on this collaboration with Anthony yes. Gormley. Yeah. I'm wondering if maybe we bring in a short excerpt of that work, which is called Lunatic. This is, by the way, is a presentation. The work would be experienced as virtual reality, which is, That's of right. course, an illusion. Um, maybe uh, it'd be interesting for people to hear a little bit how that collaboration came about. And Yeah, sure. Yeah. So um, this is a clip from uh, a VR experience called Lunatic. And the idea of this experience was to sort of blur the lines between real and unreal when you're viewing through a full three-dimensional uh, experience. So this is real data from the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter that was used, that is public. And so it's high-resolution data and allows you to sort of walk around on the moon. So I think it, it was a very organic collaboration. And in fact, I met Anthony about 16 years ago when he was elected an honorary fellow of Trinity College, where I was a, a fellow myself. And we happened to be seated next to each other, and we had a wonderful conversation. And I, he asked me some really, really difficult questions about space and modeling and abstraction. What sort of questions? Concept. What would be a difficult question for you, Priya? <laughs> I think, I th I think um, one of the questions he asked me, which has sort of stayed with me um, uh, all these years, is that when you are conceptualizing something that's very abstract, 
which has a mathematical description, how do you know which description is privileged? Why is this description better than the other one, right? And these are just um, mathematical conceptions of ideas before we collide them with real data and, uh, and really understand. So we use these conceptual model building. So model building is sort of this intermediate step where we have these theoretical ideas, there is reality and there's data and measurements that you take, which are limited by what your instruments can do. So then these ideas and instruments collide with a conceptual model. And so the question is, how do you, how do you, is that, it's, you know, it's an iterative process. So you start out with a conceptual model that's very pared down, and then you sort of add more and more complexity as the data gets more and more complex. And, um, so this process of how do you validate a description, so that's a hard question because you know that really um, there is no clear-cut answer, that it's, a, it's an iterative process, but it's also a process by subjectivity and intuition. The intuition that you build as a scientist over years of training uh, in methods, um, that's, you know, that's where that comes in. So it's this subjectivity, objectivity. Um, but what you're su suggesting is that, or, or what it sounds like Anthony was trying to get at is th there must be this precise point that is being described, but we, can't, we can never really get there. Is that it? Right, and that whatever description you in the end decide is the best description has an element of subjectivity. So this, this, yeah, so this reminds me a little bit of, so this was 16 years ago, and quite a few years ago, um, Ruth and Joe, you made quite an early work, didn't you, where you went and asked um, many, many scientists the same question over and over, mm. um, which seemed to come at this puzzle of getting down to something specific. Would you just, for the, for the benefit of the audience, say a little bit about that, that work, if you, if you know which yeah, one so I mean? Yeah, we, so we made a piece of work called Do You Think Science? And um, I, I will do, do you think yeah, science? Yeah, the work dot, called dot. Do You Think Science, dot, dot, dot. But I'll give it a, a, a spoiler just for the sake of the conversation, mm. where um, we, we asked them, do you think science can understand everything? And science often comes up with these great encompassing terms to, 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 you know, to reach out. So what, what does everything mean? And it's something that scientists often try to create a theory that will allow um, you know, a model that, that can deal with everything in physics. But of course, in, in the human world, everything includes things like love and you know, God or whatever. And, and, um, and of course, that's the, that's the wrong question. But whether that but is the role of science. that is still part of everything. And um, so we, we would ask them this question, and, and it was at a time where they thought that we were asking whether they believed in God or whether... Um, Did anyone say yes? <laughs> yeah, they, no, they, they would be um and erring about everything. And so a lot of these works that we're talking about, you can see on our website, I should say, at this point. Um, and it was really interesting how they would all interpret it as a kind of personal reflection on what, what does that question mean? And, um, and, and it's... Mm. I'm yeah. just thinking of these emotive sort of mm. motivations which seem to be coming from the art. Yeah, I can, see, I can see why you thought um, that this was, a, yeah. The, so I think that, you know, the, the role of the subjective in supposedly very objective science is what he was interrogating. And, and I think, so, you know, we had many conversations over the years and then it was very clear that, you know, we had preoccupations um, 
that were very similar. So he was very interested in how bodies enclose space and how bodies interact with space. And I was interested in disembodied space, space that has a mathematical description that um, is not as cognate to sensory perception. So, you know, um, so space that is described by a set of equations that tells you the shape of space, the motions in those spaces. So at some level, when I make those models, I'm not interested uh, when I start out whether this really is the kind of space that we live in. And does this describe our reality is not quite where you start. You start somewhere very simple, and then you build up complexity in your model and say, okay, what, do I, what all do I need? What are the ingredients that I need to add in order to make it real, correspond to the reality that we actually measure. So you're measure. working backwards from a mathematical model, whereas I suppose for anyone who's been in Anthony's exhibition, which most of the people here, Anthony seems to work from very, very graspable, very immediate, tangible, or seemingly quite tangible materials. Mm. I'm just wondering if we could bring slide uh, four up, uh, please, um, which is one of the images from uh, the exhibition. This is... Uh, a work um, called Coordinate Number Number Six, and um, for anybody who didn't manage to get into the exhibition, you, you have these. I mean, it's quite incredible, sort of three lines running through different parts of the of the gallery space. This seems like Anthony trying to answer that question. That question, really. yes, about um, location. Yeah. How do you locate yourself? How how do bodies locate themselves in space? And how do minds locate themselves, if you will, in ideas? So I think you know, there are lots of synergies in the way in which the kinds of questions he asks with his work and with the kind, I mean, we found over the years that, I mean, in some sense, they really are the same questions. Because if in your work, um, a semiconductor, were you to try and answer this question of mm. where is something located in mm. space and... Um, you would go about it in quite a different way. I, I know, it's interesting listening to Priya because you're talking about not wanting to be in that space, but we try to take what you do and then put us in that <laughs> That's space. That's right. <laughs> so we can experience that directly and then question what that becomes. Because yeah. we're very interested in how science and technology are mediating sort of nature. Right. So this idea of reality and what is the reality and what is it that science is telling us. Um, there's a... So you want to embed the subject back in, right? Yes. Because <laughs> we, we were with, um, it was a very early residency we did at this space sciences lab, and there was a solar physicist that we were talking to, Janet Lumen, and she said to us, and we were quite, it was the first residency we'd done in the science lab, and I mean, we always like to go into these things naive, but we were actually very naive going in there, and she said to us, you know, science is a human invention, it's nature that's real. And we were like, oh, well, it felt like a really naughty thing sort of to be saying. But we felt like it gave us this license to start questioning the philosophies of science more than the processes and the language of science, to not just take science as a given, which it yeah. isn't meant to be. It is meant to be a process and, a, you know, of asking questions. It's not about giving answers. So then it kind of changed our trajectory slightly just in terms of how we thought about what we were doing. Um, maybe we could just look at Halo, I think might be quite a good slide yeah, sure. to look at. That's just number, kind of number eight, please. Illustrate that idea slightly. Um, so this, 
is a piece of work that we made in 2018, and it was after we'd spent time as artists in residence at CERN, the particle physics laboratory in Geneva, and there they're colliding particles close to the speed of light in the Large Hadron Collider, and then through those subsequent collisions, they're trying to understand the fundamental makeup of matter and the forces associated with that. And so I'll just very quickly describe what this is you're seeing here. So there's a 10-meter cylinder that you can go inside or walk around. It has a 360-degree projection screen, which is projecting animations of data that's collected um, by one of the experiments on the Large Hadron Collider. And then it has 384 vertical piano wires, which as the data plays out on this screen, according to where the data points land, um, they play the piano wires, so that then you've got the sound at the same time. So it's this very physical experience. It creates particles and waves simultaneously. Yeah, so this is very It's a very much... nice way to talk about the duality, the fundamental yes. duality. Yeah. Do you want to just explain that duality, what, what you mean, for, in case anyone... Right, so I, I think that this was one of the revolutions in modern physics um, um, in the last century, is the, the realisation, uh, this is the theory of quantum mechanics, the fact that everything that we see in the universe that has a material um, existence, every particle can be conceived of as a wave as well. So we can, um, we can think of particles that appear actually stable to us as particles. In certain realms of examination, they appear to be waves. So obviously when our body is made up of atoms that are very stable, we're all very stable, but when you zoom in to the subatomic level, you can see them jiggling and you can see them jiggling and you can therefore treat them. You find that at the subatomic level, at the quantum level, um, well away from our sort of classical experience of the world, um, you can see that these particles behave like light, so you can make them interfere with each other and so on. So there's a fundamental duality in nature, and that this, this duality, though, is not exposed at all times, but it depends on the scale on which you are looking. So it depends very much on the observer. So the fun, uh, quantum mechanics also fundamentally shifted the relationship between the observer and the observed. And that there wasn't, in classical physics, you know, I can throw a ball and, uh, you know, there's a cause and an effect that you can associate linearly. Whereas in quantum mechanics, the very act of observing alters the system. So there isn't the separation. There isn't this objective observer that does not disturb or contaminate the system that is being observed. So these many big, deep conceptual shifts um, in our view of matter and the material universe happened in the 19th and 20th century. Yeah, of yeah. course. The way I like to, to think about this in terms of our work and Anthony's work is, is how um, I like to think of particles as, as when two waves interact, and that's just when a new particle is created. Um, so particles don't really exist as particles until you look at it and, and you know, a wave becomes a particle as it in, is interacting with and, and if you t think of that in terms of Anthony's work, a lot of his work is about something being still, yeah. but nothing is ever still. And his work um, takes, atomizes, so lots of the, the bodies are, are atomized into pieces, into objects, even quantum 
ideas, but they're always still. So not, not only is the sculpture still, and sculpture traditionally, you know, a non-kinetic thing, yeah. but they're about the posture being still, um, the body, the human form being still. And um, we're in our work, we're always playing with the idea that nothing is ever still. Everything's in, in a state of motion. So of course, you, you read things being still, but nothing is ever really still. And that's, right. that, that's something um, is interesting in his work, how he, you have to think about that stillness in a context of, of, of something static. I feel like it might be quite nice for people to get, because it's hard to get a full flavor of, of some of these works. Um, the work um, Earthworks might be quite interesting for people to uh, experience that. Could we go to slide number 10, please? And what we're going to do is, um, in a moment, um, if you could just say a little bit about what it is that people are about to hear, and we'll listen to this mm. for about probably 45 seconds, but um, if you could just explain. Okay, so I'll just quickly say that, so Earthworks is um, this five-channel computer-generated animation, and it's inspired by a visit that we made. There's not a short kind of story. <laughs> it's inspired by a visit that we made to a quarry, and you could read all the layers in the landscape where it used to be an old riverbed, and over thousands of years it had deposited these stones, so you could quite distinctly see these layers. And we went looking for ways that scientists create an understanding of this landscape formation. And there's this really beautiful method called analog modeling, which has been used for hundreds of years, but the technology has changed over time. And so we recreated this system whereby they take uh, layers of colored sand, and then they'll apply pressure sort of on different coordinates or shake it, move it in different ways, which then gradually introduces the ripples into the landscape. And through using this method, they can quite accurately replicate landscape formation, like model specific mountains and things. I think and that's, yeah, because you're talking about landscape formation, which is yes. thousands of years. Thousands of years, yes. Right, okay. So we're talking sort of about geological time frames. Mm. And so we're always interested in whether it's with halo, those collisions that happen close to the speed of light, you know, that's something that happens over such a short time frame we can't experience. This is the opposite, something mm -hmm. happening over a geological time frame. Um, so we, we use that as the basis for creating this animation that we could then animate, but we needed to use something to animate it. So we collected um, different types of seismic data from around the globe, from around the Earth, which it had already been collected, most of it. So we worked with glacial, earthquake, uh, volcanic, and then we went back to this quarry and collected our own size. So you're data. working with, um, this can feel like very, uh, you know, technological yes. um, artwork, but actually you're, uh, you know, if this has been used for hundreds or yeah. hundred years, you're working essentially with natural materials in, work, in much yeah. the same way as... Yeah, even though we... People, it was interesting, I was talking to a curator the other day and she said, oh, what are you doing at the moment? And I said, oh, well, we're making this sculpture. And she's like, sculpture? But you make moving image. I was like, no, no, our, our moving image is our sculpture. They're sculptures moving in time. The way we've always approached working with uh, computer-generated animation is that we've gone to it as a sculptural tool, that we then introduce time by bringing sound to it. So that's always kind of been part of our process. So should we have so, a small... So we're not yeah. going to experience the full work, but we'll... We'll just have a small listen to... Yeah. So I'll just say that the sound is um, seismic data collected inside a glacier, and you're hearing that data. We can describe it a bit more afterwards. Okay.
just... Yeah. It's just there. important to say as well, so we take that seismic data and then we use that to animate these layers, but then it's the audio at the same time, so the image and the sound are completely synchronised. And this is a way that we work a lot where we're interested in the materiality of the data and then how that sculpts, I mean, what that becomes. When you're listening to that, um, it, it sounds like other things. It could be this, listening to a fire uh, or something, but, you, but it, it does also really sound like water and glaciers and ice. Uh, and a, a lot of the data we work with, you get um, an emotional and physical kind of connection to it um, relating to the, to the original um, source, rather than, say, a lot of... Um, you know, data visualization, sonification, which it, you could actually swap where it came from with anything, and it could just be something you know arbitrary. So, so this is a, a real thing. It's that, that you're investigating. You feel that, that where it came from. Yeah. So um, it's important to say. So this yeah. is because it sounds like we've just stuck a microphone in ice and we're recording the sound, but it's right. not. So. Um, you know, the seismic data, so it's picking up vibrations, whatever the seismometers, say we're in a glacier, and it's picking up the vibrations and motions, and then it's recording that information as a, a sequence of numbers. So it could be going one, two, three, four, five, four, two, da, da, ten, da, da. So then you end up with that line. It's recorded as a sequence of numbers. And because it already exists as a waveform, we can then directly turn that into sound. The only change that we have to make is to speed it up, to bring it into the human audible range. So in, in, going back to the very start of the discussion here, yeah. in your work, much like the, the works from the Hubble telescope, there's an act of translation to bring yes. an aesthetic, essentially, in, yeah. in, in your case, artistic. And That's right. So bringing, bringing it in the human audible yes. range and the human retinal visibility range. Yes. Right? But I think what I find... Um, sort of very interesting about what you're trying to do is you're trying to capture, and I think Anthony does a lot of this in his work as well, you're trying to capture something which is like dynamic interaction between materials, between space mm. and materials, and, but you're trying to capture that um, and in some sense, right, that you're making an immersive experience mm. out of it, a multi-sensorial sort of experience. So you're trying to sort of do VR without the VR glasses right mm. I mean here yeah I mean a lot of people ask us um, you know when are you going to be doing VR uh, but it kind of adds this layer of other layer of complexity well, to yeah. kind of what we're doing because yeah. we're dealing there's specific languages that we're dealing with we're dealing with the visual scientific languages we're dealing with our own language that we've developed through working with digital technologies. And so there's a whole history that comes with that. Jumping into VR seems like a whole other kind of language. Right, but I mean, of... you're already doing an augmentation of yes. reality, as it yes. were, right? Yeah. Um, it also makes me think of what, what we mean by being immersed. I'm just wondering if we could bring up slide number three, um, which is one of the works uh, in the exhibition, which I, lots of people have got to experience. And so, it's one of my favorites. Yeah, when, uh, mine too, when, when we got a chance to experience the exhibition, you know, this is quite unusual in terms of, I think, in, in Anthony's work, in that you can go inside this, you can right. explore this, and you are we, immersed in the body. Yes. You, that's it. You, we as the body, body, can put yeah. yourself in this piece, and you move this piece around, so it, you know, it's sort of malleable, um, and you shape it and, as it shapes you. You have a, a really tangible sense of your location within this, and I, I think when you've been talking, Priya, what's been really clear to me when when you've been talking about um, at the uh, electromicroscope scale, 
or the universe scale, for you, it seems like these sorts of scales are very, very tangible. I'm just wondering, like, how do, how do you um, deal with, we can understand the scale of this picture, but right. when we look at some of the other pictures, it's very, very hard to... Right, and, and I think, yeah, and I think that's one of the most exciting things for me personally with cosmology, is the facility that you very soon, after a bit of training, acquire with developing an innate sense of scale where your sort of day-to-day -day experience is no longer relevant. So when you talk about distances, you're talking about 10 to the 18, 10 to the 21 centimeters. So, so 10 to the 18 might, you know, I'm sure lots of people- 18 zeros after 10. Mathematics, but you, you requested a short video excerpt, didn't That's you, which right. helps make some of this a little bit tangible. So, yeah, I think we, um, so I think, you know, it was another point of connection and fascination yeah. for me with um, Anthony's works is the sense of scale. So I think one of the first pieces of his that I really saw and spent time with was the Angel of the North. It is huge. It is remarkable how such a piece could have been made. And, um, and I think I could see that this is another thing that he was sort of playing with. Our sense and our perception of um, scale, of what is gigantic compared, compared to what. You know, yeah, something so is large and To see a human relative. body at that size is, you know, when you're driving on the motorways, bizarre, but Or you want to go stand next to it, right? Yeah. And similarly, you go to the LHC at CERN, and you go and you stand next to the tunnel and you're actually sort of, you know, you're really tiny. If you look at the electronics, the web of electronics that is needed to map one of those collisions, right, that we saw um, in their work, um, you know, human being is really, really tiny. So somehow the frontier, the frontier for exploration, for all creative exploration, seems to be sort of this pushing out of our natural sense, beyond our natural sense of scale. When, um, so, because both of you as artists have visited CERN and worked, did you feel, CERN is 27 kilometers? Let's talk about yeah. CERN, show a bit of um, oh. powers, powers of, 10. of 10 first. Yeah, yeah. oh yeah, we'll to give a sense of the so scale. So I think this yeah. was a film that was made in the 1970s um, that by Charles and Ray Eames, and it was commissioned to really, um, produced by IBM to provide a sense of scale, of cosmic scale. So this is, you know, post our landing on the moon. And this was to bring the cosmos closer to our day-to-day -day life. And it's just one of my favorite beautiful clips. Watch a little bit of this, yeah. Near the lakeside in Chicago is the start of a lazy afternoon, early one October. We begin with a scene one meter wide, which we view from just one meter away. Now every 10 seconds we will look from 10 times farther away, and our field of view will be 10 times wider. This square is 10 meters wide, and in 10 seconds the next square will be 10 times as wide. Our picture will center on the picnickers, even after they've been lost to sight. 100 meters wide. 
the distance a man can run in 10 seconds. Cars crowd the highway. Powerboats lie at their docks. The colorful bleachers are soldiers' field. This square is a kilometer wide, 1,000 meters. The distance a racing car can travel in 10 seconds. We see the great city on the lake shore. 10 to the fourth meters, 10 kilometers. The distance a supersonic airplane can travel in 10 seconds. We see first the rounded end of Lake Michigan, then the whole great lake. 10 to the fifth meters, the distance an orbiting satellite covers in 10 seconds. Long parades of clouds, the day's weather in the Middle West. 10 to the sixth, a one with six zeros, a million meters. Soon the Earth will show as a solid sphere. We are able to see the whole Earth now, I just over a minute along image. the journey. Yeah, let's maybe right. hold it there. The Earth diminishes into the yeah. distance, but those backgrounds... So, yeah, so, so, so that's what 10 to the 7... That's right. Is. And so I think distance, sort of cosmic distances that we're talking about are several, several multiples of that uh, beyond. So 10 to the, we've mapped out in the universe now distance scales that are 10 to the 27, 10 to the 28. So that's far out. So our maps of the universe span those kinds of distances. And so we've, for example, um, I think we could probably show the Sloan Digital Sky Survey movie now, okay. perhaps. Because we've mapped about a sort of a billion objects. We've imaged billion objects, galaxies, quasars, all kinds of supernova remnants, all kinds of things in the universe. And the Sloan Digital Sky Survey was recently, was a survey of the universe, but one third of the entire sky has been mapped. And so you have a billion things, objects in the universe, uh, cosmic objects mapped and of which several million, we actually have their unique fingerprints. So this is again data from the Hubble telescope? Uh, from ground-based telescope, oh, actually. Right, okay. This was all ground-based telescope. Actually, a dedicated 2.5-meter telescope that took all these images so over a period of 20 years. It's a survey that lasted about 20 years. Again, taken in many different filters of light, put together. And here you get a sense of scale. So you can just put it together with sort of the numbers you know, just as we had the zoom, um, zoom out in the Powers of 10 movie, it's a similar one that shows you, that takes you well outside the local group of our galaxy. So we're going to bring this out. film in, and this film puts us a bit like this individual in the picture there. So um, That's right. Let's bring it in. So this is, we are flying through real data of this galaxy survey, and this is all the data that was taken 20 years after everything was, a third of the sky was mapped. And what we are seeing, we're sort of really zooming out here to give you a sense of what it, how, how vast the scales really are in the cosmos. And also I think these sort of, um, sort of an emotional image in the sense that, you know, our galaxy is just one speck. And these are all the... So we would be one speck somewhere here. Yeah, and so, our entire galaxy, the Milky Way, would be one speck. And just imagine our solar system tucked in somewhere in there, and then little pale blue dot, us. So it gives you a sense, it's sort of sobering and exhilarating at the same time, the fact that we have the capacity to do this kind of, you know, our human capacity to do this. Should we, um, should we bring the lights back up, please? Yeah. And um, yeah, so we're sort of, the center of um, something profound. Um, 
when, uh, so the, the, I suppose the, um, the, the question earlier about the, the limits of science, mm -hmm. science's capacity to understand everything, you know, the, the major institutions of science, um, for, for Joe and Ruth, when you were working within major institutions of science, the types of institutions that are seeking to produce and to disseminate these types of images, how do your questions as artists challenge those institutions? Um, well, there's a kind of an obvious example that is <laughs> a direct challenge um, that comes to mind when we were making a work that was similar to Black Rain in that we were working, accessing uh, visual data that had been captured by cameras, but it was a work called Brilliant Noise, and we worked with a combination of, I think there were seven a mixture of seven sort of ground-based and satellite observatories all looking at the sun. And so there were, there were different archives that we wanted to access this raw data from. And we needed to, to be able to access the data. We needed help from scientists to give us access to those things. And we made a visit to um, the Goddard Space Flight Center where there's scientists and engineers based there who are responsible for creating algorithms that clean up and process the data in the way that the scientists would like to be able to study it. And so we met these, uh, these guys and they were really excited because we wanted to make a film about the sun using all this data that had been captured. And then we said, but we, we want to go back to the raw data, you know, and we showed them an image. This is what we really like. We want to find these images. And they're like, no, 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 no. You don't, you don't want those images. Right. These are the images I mean, you want the, to you know, use. The moniker in science is one person's noise is another person's <laughs> signal. Right. So this is like their life work. work in right. life. But um, um, so they did. They gave us their card and they said, you know, get in touch. We can definitely help you. But we never heard from them again because we were kind of removing them from the equation, really, because we wanted this raw, raw data. So not everybody is always very understanding, understandably, actually, because quite often, you know, there's a lot of work and process and reason for why the scientists or um, the engineers or programmers are presenting the work in that way. But as artists, we're not trying to present it scientifically accurately. Right, but I mean, I think, mm. but, you know, um, well, there's the issue of the practice of science, but yes. then I think there's some deeper issues about what science is really doing mm. There are very particular and circumscribed, and not in a completely narrow way, but circumscribed in a structural way, mm. the kinds of questions you can ask. So there's a, it's, it, it is limited, mm. but limited um, by only our imagination and our tools, mm. and what we have as methods of probing, like mathematics, instruments, the accuracy and the precision of instruments, and so on. So I think that science, how we frame the question and how the questions are framed are what maps out the domain of mm. what the scientists are really interested mm. in. Mm. And of course, these, you, know, you can ask other questions and you can ask them in other ways. Um, and the process, therefore, of what signal you're interested in, what what phenomenon you want to study, and therefore what rationale you have provided for a satellite mission. You know, you can't say that, we're just gonna put a satellite up, it's gonna cost a billion dollars, a billion pounds of taxpayer money. Uh, we look for anything that's there. I mean, we're looking at anything and everything. 
that's not going to fly, right? So you have to ask a set of articulated questions. And I think, you know, I'm not defending the NASA Goddard scientists and engineers here, but I'm explaining to you Mm. that it doesn't come from a narrowness of mind. Oh, no. It doesn't, it, it really comes from the fact that there is so much data that can be taken and there are well articulated questions. There are limits to those questions. And I'm the first one to admit that science cannot answer all questions. We are limited by our methods. And so what, there are only certain What are the limits that we've reached? Have we reached the limits? One could argue that we have reached some kinds of limits. And there's sort of, if you look at some of the big problems, for example, in cosmology, just to illustrate, we're at a sort of impasse in the sense, you know, I've shown you these dark matter maps. So we can exquisitely spatially map and tell you where dark matter is, uh, how it's distributed, how it's clumped, what it does, how it manifests, but we don't know what it is. We don't know what it is made of. So, you know, it's akin to knowing everything about sand dunes, how they form, how they get reshaped by the wind and water and everything, but not know what a grain of sand is made of in the end. So that's where we are. And that's a fundamental impasse. We've been stuck there for a couple of decades because we think dark matter is a particle, a particle that was created likely in the very early universe, um, but we don't know what it is still. And we've been trying to find it uh, with direct and indirect experiments. And so we're kind of stuck in a way. It's this thing of the, it's a, it's a known unknown. That's right. It's a known unknown. And we might be scuppered at the moment by unknown unknowns that are quite relevant. I really hate to uh, give credit to uh, Dr. Rumsfeld. Rumsfeld. Yes. yes. Okay. Well, I, Joe has some to yeah. <laughs> I always like to think of the, the relationship between art, science, and technology in those terms. You know, that in a sense, technology is known knowns um, and science is known unknowns and art is unknown unknowns. And I like to think of, of art in a way of, of stepping the opposite direction from science. And it's not trying to come up with an answer. It's trying to think that we don't actually have a way of knowing something completely. It's always a, pi- a bigger picture, a connection between something else. It's a context that's always expanding. So unknowing something is... is the way I like to think of art. This is a really useful framework that uh, I'm, I'm really glad that Although, you Although, I mean, I, I, I hate to sort of add a little fly in the ointment, yeah. but I think what is, but I think that's what is very interesting about technology at the moment with AI and machine learning. The fact that, you know, you can no longer predict the technology mm. is predicting outcomes, but you can't predict the process. You cannot unravel the process by which it's arriving, so you give this big data sets and machine learning will tell you, will pick out all kinds of correlations that are not visible to us, that are not obvious to us, very subtle correlations. But sorting out the mere correlation from the causation is a fundamental problem that we haven't this really solved. This is the limit solved. of the human rather than um, thinking itself, possibly. You know, the, the machines have more of a comprehension than we do. I don't know if you want to call that comprehension well, with the, the same the, in, C in terms as... Of, in terms of the data set that they're working right. with, they, they, they can understand more of it than we can. So it's really the, these... They the understand aspects you know, of it. They understand is, aspects of it that have to do with scale that's right. it's, that it's our scale, mind cannot. Scale again. But perhaps there are aspects that we can still understand better because... We have an implicit understanding now of how subjects like physics, where you have laws, 
we have structured, there's a, there are principles that can guide and structure our understanding of what we are examining in nature, objects that we are interrogating, right? And, you know, it's unclear whether these machines can uh, replace what we are, we have the capacity for at the moment. Thank you, Priya. Thank you, Joe. Thank, thank you. you, Ruth. I'd like to thank all of our guests um, for, the, for their participation this evening. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this recording, feel free to leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts.